1: Fair enough.
0: There you go. Well, that's good. Putting it into practice. How about you? What Mm. have we done? (laughs) Our week's gone pretty well.
1: (laughs) Welcome, Shine Podcast listeners.
0: It's Bethany. It's... Oh, I did this last week, Kathany! It's part two! (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Fine. And we're
1: here with Melanie Good, our resident relationship expert. If you missed last week's podcast, go back and listen to it first, because this is part one, part two. Yeah, you gotta hear part one. So if you missed it, go listen to part one. We're back in the podcast studio with Mel, part two on the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse.
0: We covered... Initially it was found in Revelation and it was representing like war and wrath and Mm -hmm. all of these things that lead to demise. Mm -hmm. And you were connecting that to
1: Relationships. And yeah, who's the guy that... Gottman. Gottman brought this into the counseling field. We covered criticism and defensiveness last week. Give you a real quick recap. I did my homework. I had to listen to this podcast like three times because... I got called out last week, but anyhow, criticism is when you're judging or putting people's down, judging their character, criticizing their character instead of dealing with the complaint. And the antidote for that is to register a complaint and say, I feel this way when this happens and I need this to happen to not feel that way. Pretty good. It's pretty and good. then the next one was defensiveness. And this is what, there's two types of defensiveness. Innocent victimhood, when your partner claims they're being mistreated. Example, what about all that I do? I can never do enough to please you. And there's also indignant counterattacks. You're complaining about me? What about all the things that you do? And the antidote to defensiveness... So you're a good teacher, Mal. is acknowledging the truth in your partner's statement. And some phrases you could say is fair enough or I can see your point. So we're moving on today to the third horseman of the apocalypse, which is contempt.
0: Okay. Wait, I have a question. <laughs> because last time we had talked about, you know, criticism, the idea that they're separate but can also lead Into each other
2: or no? I don't know exactly why he has it cascading like he does, but Gottman specifically says it's a cascade, so I'm not really sure. But I know criticism and defensiveness can go, they play off each other.
0: Yeah. They can
2: stand separate or they can be interacting with each
0: other. Do you feel like out of the four, there's one that's the worst? It's this one. Contempt. Yes. But it's the third one in order. Right. This is the one that
2: if you have contempt in a relationship, it's the biggest predictor of divorce really at the heart of contempt. The real manifestation of contempt is emotional, psychological abuse. That's really where this goes. Contempt is criticism on steroids. It's like the atomic bomb of criticism. It's criticizing, but then raising yourself above the other person and acting superior toward I know better than you in the way that you deliver that. It communicates that you have disgust or disdain for the person. So not only are you criticizing them, but you're communicating that they're gross to you or less than you or stupid or dumb. Contempt includes things like insults, put-downs, blame shifting. So what's interesting on contempt is they did this study over time, longitudinal studies, and they found that the number of times a partner expresses contempt in a 15 minute discussion predicts how many infectious diseases the listener is going to get in the next four years.
1: I did see a documentary about that where this counselor researcher was interviewing couples and He would watch them for 15 minutes. He could tell which couples were going to get divorced. Yeah, that had to be Gottman. because they followed them like five years later mm -hmm, or seven years later, and he was right. Mm -hmm. Because the ones that were showing contempt, rolling their eyes, huffing, sighing about their partner, all ended up divorced. I'm
2: sure that was Gottman because they have the love lab, and I think it's in Oregon, and they do all that where they have couples come in. And that's how they've studied this all and tracked it and then figured out
1: what it predicts and it's accurate so if you're living with a partner that has contempt towards you you your risk of having infectious like you'll get
2: sick more often infectious illnesses are things like colds flus and whatnot but also what i see happen is chronic disease over time for people that live in situations that are unhealthy and it doesn't get better Then I see after like 40s, the 40s and 50s, where people get autoimmune diseases, cancers and things like that. So it affects uh, your body. So this makes it difficult for me. We direct people to just be long-suffering in an abusive relationship. Mm. If you understand what I mean, like that is saying just stick in there and hope he will change. They're sacrificing their own value and worth and their health to just wait and see if he gets better and you're just getting worse he's not getting better
1: and it could be vice versa right it could be
2: yeah it totally can be and it totally is at times so the more contempt that we see in a relationship the more infectious illness we're gonna
0: see wow wow i feel like you've shared on this so many times at church you know when you have the opportunity to give sermons and stuff. I feel like you continue to talk about, you know, the power of the tongue, power of your words, mm-hmm. and how much things you say matter. And I feel like so often we're like, oh, you know, the Bible says speak nicely and I'll do it because it tells me to. And that's a nice little truism. But you hear statistics and research like that. Well, I think it's
1: Proverbs 11, 18. Fact check me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that says there's power In the tongue, life and death. Right. You can speak life over people, but you could also speak death over them.
0: And that is so fascinating And that's not metaphorically speaking. Right. That is
1: literally speaking. And Mel, your research is, you've been learning about, proves that. Mm -hmm. I love it when science proves the Bible.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and you guys, if you've ever seen this, hopefully you don't ever have to see this because it's really uncomfortable. But when you're around a couple that fights in this way or when you have one of the partners coming at one of the other partners in this way with name calling, you know, really nasty sarcasm, that mockery. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Have you ever been in a position where you've had to witness that? It's really hard to sit there for me and my personality and of course not say anything that's super hard, but it's comfortable or fun. It's one thing when you see kids do that and you know that's bad and you want to correct them, but when you see adult, another adult do that to an adult, It's really hard to watch. Mockery is like a really, really powerful form of contempt. And it's very destructive. Mm -hmm. And facial expressions are mockery. You don't even have to have words to be extremely mocking and contemptuous. So like, let's say you guys asked your husband, you're driving in the car and you say, oh, please slow down. I'm scared. And his response was, I'm going so fast. I'm scared. I'm scared. That's mockery. Work on all this stuff with couples. And this was brought up in session this week about when a wife would say something. And I think she probably used criticism because the stuff's all chronic through these relationships. But regardless, when she would say something about needing him to slow down, he would actually speed up. And so we had talked about that and how frightening that is and powerless. That makes the other partner feel and how that separates rather than brings couples together mm-hmm. this conflict always has and i'll tell you this all the time conflict has the ability to bring and it serves to bring a couple closer but when we do that when we're defensive like that or we're contemptuous we're actually separating further
1: what makes people be like that Like, what would make a husband mock their wife about being fearful of the, you know, going 100 miles an hour?
2: Well, contempt is abuse. So whatever went into an individual's life to cause them to respond in relationship in an abusive manner is what caused that. So typically, they've experienced their own trauma. Well, I guess you couldn't, I was going to say, or they witnessed it, but that is abusive. Even if you're, let's say your father wasn't abusive to you, but he was to your mother, you're experiencing abuse. So, I mean, typically it's going to be, I'm going to go with the short answer of generational trauma, but it's abuse. It's abusive behavior. So whatever the cause is, that is what is happening. That's abusive behavior.
1: You said this, and I have this voice that I mimic him in, and he's like, I don't sound that way. And then yes. he'll do the same thing to me. Like, he'll repeat what I'm saying <laughs> with his imitation voice of me, and I'm like, I don't sound like that. And he's like, yes, you do.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but then are you laughing and chuckling like this?
1: Uh, or no, no. not in the moment. So
2: it's different when you, you guys are being playful and laughing about this stuff we do. And at the time that it's happening, it's destructive behavior. I'm getting called, I I thought I was gonna be off
1: the hook today and not (laughs) get called out, but. So you
2: like to ask, where did these things come from? And you don't have to answer this out loud, but think about where did that come from? Where did I learn to do that behavior? Because these again, are conflict tools that people use and they're not healthy conflict tools. They're conflict tools that people use. And so think about where did I learn to do that as a weapon to defend or to engage or counter engage, you have to just think about it.
1: I think we don't realize how our tone is when we say things to other people. Mm -hmm. And they're reflecting back your tone. And you're like, I didn't sound I just said no. He's like, No, you said no. (laughs) (laughs) maybe it's when you're not you don't realize what your tone is with other people
2: i would not consider that mockery then if you're addressing this is how you said something
1: okay good i'm off the hook yeah i'm not sure that's mockery
2: (laughs) mockery is to put someone down
0: into
1: like give us an example of mockery that you've seen in the counseling room
0: Oh. Well, the don't go so fast, I'm scared thing. I mean, that was a good Yeah, that example. is stuff that does happen.
2: And <clears throat> like in the counseling room itself, because I definitely try. I talked to Chuck and Lynn about this because sometimes we talk about couples counseling. And I said, I actually have a pretty big policy on if I know or as soon as I know or if I can tell there's abusive behavior in the relationship, I pretty much disagree to doing couples counseling because the abuser will really work to collude with the therapist against the abused partner. And it's a mind game, so it's very hard to tell exactly what's going on outside Mm -hmm. of the room. But you can kind of... No, there's the power differential, and things get taken out and then used against the partner, and I'm not going to contribute to that. And in couples counseling, you have to be sort of like fair about it, right? Like everybody has their their needs, everybody has faults, and all has to be addressed. But with an abuser, you know, we're trying to deal with prob- very big problems. And let's say he is the abuser. So we're trying to deal with very big systemic problems in the coupledom. So with, that's big and it looks like we're talking to him. And then she might have this very like small thing and he wants to equate it to be the same or her little tiny problem, even bigger, but at least as big as this big problem we're trying to address. So it's just a mess. I don't have tons of these people sitting in front of me, but I do get them in front of me and it's, it's really ugly to watch. That's where I've seen people totally mock people. Oh, you think your job's so important. Just stuff like that, just totally dismissing um, not giving any credit to the spouse for any of her achievements or his achievements. It's so much insecurity coming through but armored up under this defensive attacking style.
1: Do you think people are modeling what their how their parents treated them? Yeah in I these do
2: situations? I can usually definitely track it back to their relationship at home growing up.
1: Mm -hmm. so again this isn't just for married couples these this information covers all sorts of relationships
2: it does cover all sorts of relationships it's just that in other relationships if people treated you like this you'd be gone
1: well not when you're a kid well right like you don't have that choice
2: but you also have no ability to fix this when you're a kid either this would still end up in couples counseling because there would be a mom and a dad theoretically Yeah, it's the fact that the kids have no choice, that they become so damaged that then they go on and perpetuate that. They have no power.
1: So what's the antidote to contempt? Mm -hmm.
2: I forgot about that part. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) because it's so deep. I know. The antidote to contempt is like the one with criticism. I would and I do really work with this person to learn to put their feelings into words and communicate it. Having them say, I feel such and such about such and such and what they need and a contemptuous abusive person has a hard time with it but we're still you know that's the skill that's what we're going to do they have a hard time with it because they become so dysregulated and so they begin to lash out so to have someone say to slow down like that and say here's my what i feel here's my feeling words but you know with someone that's just learned to be contemptuous as a pattern but doesn't have like a real personality disorder or hasn't taken this to the farthest extreme, we can we can definitely make progress with this. And the other thing is setting up in the home this atmosphere of appreciation. So especially with the person struggling with the contemptuous behavior is looking for, I'm gonna just, again, for sake of argument, to make it easy to say him and her, but to have him looking for what she is doing that he appreciates. So he, you set up this atmosphere of appreciation in the home, watching all day, instead of scanning for what's wrong and being critical, scanning for what she's doing right and then expressing it. That's how we go about working on contempt in that marriage dynamic.
1: I see this a lot with women being contemptuous about how their husbands take care of the kids. I think or that's raise, critical. That's criticism?
2: It's probably more criticism. Like, why did you do that? They have to wear this. Well, how could you put something like that on them? That's still criticism. Contempt to be taking. I see what you're saying because they do maybe have the belief that they're their ability to pick an outfit is better than their husband, which, you know, to some degree it is, but you don't have to communicate it that way per se. Yeah. So it can definitely go into contempt. You're right. Cause I do see a lot of women definitely approach life. Like they definitely know
1: better than their husband. Do you think the um, family sitcoms have portrayed this a lot? Mm -hmm. I see that mostly with, you know, sitcoms making the father figure look like a buffoon or a Mm -hmm. doofus yeah
2: that's been going on for a long time It's just continuing the erosion of everything family relationships yeah
0: (laughs) i feel like it's so fascinating that they do all of this inside of comedic sitcoms like it's all supposed to be funny that the dad's adult (laughs) like what an intelligent way to weaken men and to make families look to kind of unorder them and Mm -hmm
1: weaken them do you find that your clients who are demonstrating contempt towards each other are willing to be like oh okay i'll start looking for the good is that (laughs) or is that really hard for them to do
2: i think if it were in the example that you were saying about how wives can slip to contemptuousness so they're critical but they can have slips to contemptuousness i think that it would be much easier to get them to reorient their thinking But I think that for the really sick couples that come in and they're contemptuous towards each other, at that point, there's just so much disdain. They don't have trust for each other. They do not have goodwill towards each other. They're constantly ready to fight, you know, this lack of trust that if you open your mouth, you're coming for me, which mostly happens. That would feel to them very unsafe to look for something good. Because then they will feel like I'm letting down my guard. And if I do that, I'm going to get taken out. Mm -hmm. And I I want to make a point, too, here also that if someone is being abused, the antidote is for the contemptuous person, not the person being abused. So I could see someone tell me, okay, I'm in this abusive, contemptuous relationship. So what I have to do is look for all the good in him and set up this atmosphere in my home. That's good. They see this, you know, and then he will go along and not see any good. And that isn't the antidote for her in an abusive relationship. Her antidote is to learn boundaries and how to say no.
0: Yeah,
2: He would be the one that has trouble with contemptuous behavior. And so he needs to set up in his heart a way to look for what is going good and learn to verbalize it.
1: I think about that verse in Proverbs that says love covers an offense. That's the Proverbs. Yeah. (laughs) let me fact check <laughs> no, i'm just
2: kidding yes yes an offense because that is you know in gottman's terminology it's unfortunate incident we have a little argument you know we have a disagreement and none of this stuff happens or mild levels of this no contempt there's no contempt in a healthy marriage there's like zero mm. there's yes to stonewalling yes to defensiveness yes to criticism so that happens, we have little, little bursts of that, and then we go into repair. That's called making up, you know, like people will say, we made up. It absolutely does. So don't get confused an offense with a pattern of abusive behavior.
0: Yes. Because I was going to ask you where you were going with that. And I'm so glad that you expanded on it. Yes, expanded, <laughs> you specified like what that is. There's a difference between an offense and mm-hmm. ongoing behavior. Like Those are not the same.
1: I think some fundamentalists use that as a weapon for I promise you. people that are being abused.
2: I promise you that spiritual abuse is a real thing. And so that's plucking scriptures and using them to essentially control another person's
1: behavior. When I think about that verse, I think about it doesn't mean you don't address the offense, but Mm -hmm. you're not out there telling everyone and their brother about it. Like you're dealing with it, with the person and not gossiping.
2: Gossiping in the counseling world, we call that triangulation. So like if you have a problem with Kate, but you're only talking to me about it. That's called triangulation. So you're drawing me into your issue with her trying to solve it by talking to me, but not her. So it's another unhealthy way that people very commonly try to offload their angst that they have in a relationship. It solves nothing. In fact, it usually makes more problems. Yes. But yeah. Thank you. Gossiping is also triangulation.
1: And this is went from this is straight from Matthew. Like, if you have an issue with your brother, go to that mm-hmm. brother and mm-hmm. deal with it, and don't talk about the other people that aren't going to fix the problem. On the way, yeah. It's you spouting the scriptures today. I don't have the addresses. You're on fire. They're in there. They're <laughs> <Yeah>. in there. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk. You're. You talk about the gentle startup again. Give us an example of gentle startup when it comes to the antidote for contempt.
2: Well, gentle startup in general is coming to someone instead of blasting them, you know, it's coming to them and saying, hey, can I talk to you, Kate? Or when could we get together? Or is this a good time? That's inviting someone into conversation or into relationship versus springing myself upon someone. So that's gentle startup. And so, obviously, contempt, if I call you a bunch of names and I say you're no good and, oh, gosh, Beth, why are you feeling so hurt? (laughs) (laughs) Mockery, that's not gentle. Right? So, if I was a contemptuous person and I was working on this, would have to stop with all of the emotions that I have. And I'd have to really ask myself, what am I feeling? So that, like, with the feeling word wheel or some tool like that, and I would have to get myself to understand what it is. So I would name the words, you know, disappointed, let down, upset, even generically, if I want to use that angry, then I would ask myself why, because this is like self-regulation skills. Why am I feeling disappointed? Why am I feeling upset? So maybe I would say to myself, well, I'm upset because Beth said she was going to call me and five days ago now, It hasn't happened. And so now I know what I feel and I know about what. Mm -hmm. I don't now need to triangulate and talk to Kate about it. Oh, You know, Beth never does what she says. She never calls people when she says she's going to. She's a terrible friend. I don't have to do all that. I can go to Beth and I can say, hey, I was feeling upset. I was feeling disappointed. I was feeling let down Mm -hmm. when I was waiting for a phone call that I didn't get. And it's still the same pattern. Now I can ask, hey, going forward, if you tell me you're gonna call me, can you do it? Because this really triggers me. Or I could say, if you don't know you're gonna call, just don't say you are. You know, I could say anything there. I'll say,
1: I was fawning.
2: You were fawning? You were people-pleasing?
1: Yes, I said I was going to call you, but I hate talking I on the phone. I didn't mean it. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right, really, you were fawning. We're, we're learning, learning all funny. sorts of tools today. <laughs> That's great. Well, it reminds me of Wesley's sermon on Sunday. She was saying that you know she hits these moments where she finds herself feeling off or angsty, but isn't able to put words to them. And she said, in those moments, I find myself having to pause for a moment and just be like, hey God, mm-hmm. something feels really off and I'm having a very difficult time like finding, finding why? It, yeah. And so she was saying the goodness of just sitting down mm-hmm. and taking time to find it, because I feel like life is so fast and you'll feel those things, mm-hmm.
2: but. Yeah, you know. and there's a total why. It's sometimes a thing, so I like it when you get to this point But when you get to this point in your life where you you begin to get these skills and be able to use them, where you can say, okay, I feel some way, I feel like I'm off, and then begin to sort out what it is. And I find myself doing this, and I'll be like, okay, I think it could be three things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It could be hormones. It could be I'm tired. It could be, you know, like, I don't know, I'm upset with Beth or something. Mm. But I I can find it or narrow it down now. And then I look at it deeper, and, and I'll say to myself, I bet, so this happened recently, and I was like, I bet I'm feeling this. I was just feeling angsty at the end of a day of work. And I was like, I bet I'm just tired. I was just feeling this. And I said, I bet that's what it is. And how I'm gonna know for sure is if when I go home and I go to bed and I wake up tomorrow and it's gone, I'm gonna know it was definitely that. And that's exactly what it was. So it's good getting to know and be able to use this stuff and just help to stay more regulated and not so spun out of control and reactive.
1: Just to defend myself, I do call my friends. Yeah, these are
2: all examples. (laughs) Beth is great. Yes, no problem. Sorry, but just it might be
1: five days later. No, just kidding. No,
2: because we have boundaries. We never say we're calling anyone if we don't mean it. (laughs) Also, Beth, you would say I'm going to call you, and I would say don't, don't do it. I'm not. I don't want to talk. Why is
1: my phone ringing? (laughs) This isn't an allotted
2: time. For us to talk. This is actually all true. <laughs> <laughs> me and Beth are good at this. I End did. call. I'm not going to answer that. Text me. <laughs> we'll be like, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Why are you calling me? It's past 7.30. It's before 8.30. Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> 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 We're cool with it. You so even though contempt, even yeah. though contempt is both. It's 7.30. <laughs> <laughs> And, or if it's before
1: 8.30 in the morning, do don't call then either. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love calling at 6 a.m. <laughs> you don't. Oh. You're not even up. <laughs> I used to. Okay, so why is contempt, even though you said these are cascading, contempt is the number one indicator for it, divorce. Gottman said it. I didn't
2: say it. Oh. I just said and I. it's all written there, and there's no exact explanation. I will review
1: again. I'll have to go see if I missed it. Okay, so... I don't know why. Just to recap on this, if you are listening to this and you're like, hmm, I think I might be contemptuous, stop doing that. And you need to look (laughs) for the good in your partner.
2: Let me talk on the cascading. I think I can see it because he's talking about cascading into demise. You know, like lots of people are critical. Then we start to get this pattern of critical and defense and critical and defense. Or if you're just defensive then I can't even register a complaint. And then it gets more serious when that all leads to, now I just feel cold towards you. Mm. And I might even feel contemptuous towards you. And there's a lot, he talks a lot on when people feel contemptuous, it's very difficult to bring them back from that. Mm. And that usually that is the end. Maybe a person is, in. they may not act contemptuous in a marriage. They may not be abusive. They They could have good values but they feel it, they're cold. There's no more affection for this person. And so we're in trouble. And then stonewalling, we're no longer engaging. Mm. And then there's a little bit extra stuff at the bottom that talks about what happens if people are no longer doing any of this.
1: Moving on to stonewalling. Mm.
2: Stonewalling is more often used by men than women. And it's when the listener is withdrawing from interaction. So they just shut down, they turn in words, they lock away. Um, they might get up and leave the room, slam the door. But, you know, I'm just not engaging. I'm not responding anymore. I'm becoming a stone. Women will use this. And that's what we started to talk about in the first session, Like more, or the first time we got together, more often than not, women that stonewall have some kind of abuse history. But I want to say that when they use stonewalling as their primary method to protect themselves from anything, even if it's reflective feedback and that. And I picture that as women that have been abused in childhood that were like sort of trapped in a situation. This is how I view it. I don't know if I'm correct, but they just learn to listen and absorb, but they're not really listening. They're separating themselves from the listening by just going within themselves and sort of just putting up and tolerating until they can get free from the situation. That's how I view a woman trauma survivor being a stonewaller men will stonewall and look away where women when they stonewall they tend to keep eye contact or at least continue to look in the direction of the person that's speaking Yes. because yeah, we're socialized as women to maintain looking in the direction of the speaker and men i guess are not socialized for that they're allowed to break <laughs> eye contact and walk away <laughs> So the important thing to understand, so you, you wanted to see how this works in your life, is that stonewalling is about being physiologically flooded, overwhelmed, like I'm at my fill, I'm done, I got nothing, basically you're not going to shut up, you're just going to keep going, I got to sit here and put up with this, or, you know, I just, I, I just have nothing. So if you took the heart rate of this person, it's probably around 100 beats or more a minute, they're really very anxious and upset inside.
1: Amygdala gets hijacked.
2: The amygdala is hijacked pretty much in all of this. But yes, being physiologically flooded. So I'm now flooded with emotion to the point I might blow. So I have some guys that do this that know that they have this point where they blow and they hit very regretful behavior. And so they'll go into stonewalling. It's almost protection. They're getting criticized. That, 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 And they know, I'm going to come at you really bad right now. And they might walk out. They might slam the door. They might, you know, break contact. This manifests in so many different
0: ways. But do you feel like in situations like that, stonewalling is for the benefit of the other person and leaving the room, separating themselves? Yes. In order not to... I mean, that, I just want you to see
2: how you feel when you feel you have to leave the room, that flooding. And so I also will have a woman, you know, have a husband just going and going and lecturing. Women come in a lot talking about husbands that lecture. They just will go on and they're very powerful. And there is such a difference between a conversation and being told. Women that I work with that have this going on at home, they just get to a point. They have no more explanations. They have no more words. They've answered all their questions. They've looked everything up on Google. They're being demanded to look up and And explain, now there's nothing left, but he's not out of energy for this yet. And so they just put their lips together and they stop talking. So lots of different ways that this manifests itself for sure. So the antidote to stonewalling is understanding flooding. So the whole couple needs to understand flooding. Okay so that if I'm engaging with you and I see you begin to stonewall me, I can say, hey, I see that we need to take time. We know we need to stop, we need to take a break. So I could do that. That's part of me helping you self-soothe. This could happen in session, You know, in therapy. This stuff can happen. I check in with people all the time when I see them disappear in their mind, like their eyes are over there, and I'll say, hey, are you still here with us? If they're not, then
0: I wait. Is there a difference between like stonewalling, shutting down, and disassociation? Yeah. Like, yes. All of those three different things.
2: They can be interlinked or they could be cascading, but there are okay. different things. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So
1: if you feel like you're the one who's stonewalling and you catch yourself, you could be. I need some time right now. Mm -hmm. I cannot process this information Mm -hmm. or this is too much for me. Mm -hmm. Can we come back and have a conversation about this later? Right.
2: Yeah. So if you're healing from this, you understanding that that is what's going on. You feel the lights going out inside of you. You feel that you're too ramped up. You can no longer engage in a conversation. That's exactly what you would do. And then go about using skills to soothe self-regulate that can be things just like taking a walk sitting in the sun taking a shower (laughs) drinking a cold glass of water getting out of the situation and then being able to come back though in a couple in the in solve the problem is what's really important so if people stonewall because they get physically physiologically overwhelmed and they go away and they never come back we have still problems because we have abandonment and we have a person that can't handle their emotions that then abandons the situation, you know, so then we have a partner that's always going to feel, I can't bring anything to the discussion or he or she flees. So that would be a cycle of its own that we'd have to deal with.
1: And there's probably healthy, soothing and unhealthy. soothing. There's very
2: unhealthy, soothing. Like
1: I'm going to go eat a bag of cookies or I'm going to go drink Drink. a bottle of wine Mm -hmm. or
2: act out sexually smoke pot smoke there's so much most people you know love to go towards some kind of unhealthy thing at first it gives you some very immediate results you don't have to face your feelings what they're really doing is numbing rather than soothing they're numbing
1: scroll on instagram well what's really soothing then
2: well, anything can be soothing that you the healthy, consider it, but part. Part. if it causes another consequence, it's not healthy soothing. So like if it has cost, either socially, relationally, or physically, or spiritually, emotionally. So if I feel um, calmed down by going to the casino and gambling about $2,000, I've made a choice that now is going to have another effect. Mm-hmm. So to me, the way I define it, that healthy coping mechanisms have no negative effects.
1: So go for a walk or take a shower or drink a glass of water.
2: Well, (laughs) do not simplify it that much. (laughs) Every person has to develop what works for them. That's way too- Go tinker in the
1: garage, go garden.
2: You might journal, you might talk to a friend. I might not. You might meditate, you might do yoga. Pet your dog. You really, really have to dig down into each person individually mm-hmm. and see what does bring them from a heightened pulse down to a to a regulated state.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It is very different for everybody. So yeah, don't don't do that where you say these are the three things, and then they will punch you in the face because <laughs> they're not going to feel regulated. They're going to be very upset. Like <laughs> I have to exercise. <laughs> that is the stupidest thing ever. So that is stonewalling. And then interestingly, sometimes couples come in and they're not doing criticism. They're not doing defensiveness. They're not acting contemptuous. They're not stonewalling. There's like nothing. They're like, no, nothing. None of that happens. They're like, okay, but you're here. Why are you here? I mean, you would think everything's fine, but they feel anything but fine. So when that is going on in a family, in a couple when they present and there's no horsemen, but they're not in a good place. What we have is total emotional disengagement, just two people living side by side in the same space with no connection. So there's not conflict, but there's also an absence of any positive affect. And I definitely have seen this. So no emotional connection, no humor, no affection, no
1: interest in each other. Does it go through the stages? So maybe they used to do criticism, defensive, contempt, stonewalling, and it just got exhausting. So they just, now there's nothing?
2: My guess is yes, because at one point they got married. They ran out of energy. (laughs) They become full of contempt. So they were to be honest. They would basically, they would have said at some point, I hate this person. And then they would get to a point where they say... I just feel nothing for this person. Mm. They're even farther than hate.
1: But sometimes they're staying in that relationship because of the kids or because of finances or... Religion, family. Mm -hmm. Is there an antidote for that?
2: You would have to be able to go all the way back to where you build friendship and connection and shared experiences and all of this stuff. And I'm going to go with... I doubt it, but no one likes to hear that, so I always have to throw in, you know, there's always a possibility, but really, to get two people at that point simultaneously ready to start to do that work and have enough trust, that will
1: not be short of a miracle. Do you find this a lot in empty nesters where their connection was all about the kids, and then the kids are gone, and then there's nothing?
2: Well, what I find in empty nesters is that they neglected everything for 25 years and when they and they focused on the kids because that was safe and comfortable and not vulnerable. So they never addressed any of the stuff. They never addressed any of this, they never addressed any communication. They didn't foster their friendship and relationship and so when they get to the end of the kids, their joint mission is gone and there's nothing left to connect them except for all the things they have now accumulated the house, the finances, the
1: 401ks and all of that. Where do you see the most success in couples that come to you that turn the corner and make things better? What, what is it in those couples that?
2: I know it's when they come before they're contemptuous towards each other, because once they've gone cold, it's very hard to come back. As long as they're still feeling friendship, affection, they have humor, there's tons of hope. When that's gone, and even through Gottman studies, you're pretty much done. So they'll either be divorced or they'll just live this way, emotionally disengaged for the rest of the time.
1: Have you had couples that have come to you in the contemptuous stage and have turned around?
2: No. For a short period of time, they'll tinker with it. But no.
0: I feel like that that word that you said, simultaneous, Mm -hmm. The idea that it has to be something that they're both willing to do at the same time, giving all the history. (laughs) Yes, both they're willing to work and just how huge that is.
2: Yeah, because you have to imagine when a couple's there, how much resentment is inside each one of them for the hurt they have suffered. So it's not like they're just... Being stubborn, unwillfulness, it's tons of very bad behavior towards each other for a very long period of time with very little, probably no deposits of affection, love, humor, companionship at all for a very long period of time. So your resentment is through the roof towards each other, which means you have no trust. So you wouldn't trust the goodwill of this person to leave this room and go do these things we just talked
1: about. This reminds me of our interview with Alyssa Flint when she said, you know, she started reading the Bible and she found that when she lived her life, according to the Bible, things just worked out better for her. You know, when she was still learning about God and searching that she was like, it just makes sense. When I follow God's word, things go better. They do and go better. there's so much richness in the Bible about relationships mm-hmm. and how to have healthy relationships and can that, I, that go against the society. Like yeah. society tells us, no, don't turn the other cheek. Sitcoms are mocking families. It's every everything opposite. Like, it is, it, and the Bible is,
2: is all wisdom. I love it. Since we're talking on abuse and difficult relationships, I have to always throw this in there because this is what I do all week, working in abusive relationships pretty much within the faith community. So I just wanted to say, because that's very true what you're saying, Beth. But if I am using those scriptures to tell you how to treat me, we're in trouble.
1: It's for your own. It's for your own. This is how I'm going to operate. You read it
2: and you change you.
1: Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Because I know we've talked about this at the Thrive Conference. When religion tells people they need to stay in abusive relationships. No, chuck and lynn do a lot of marriage counseling and they're like nope that's a that's a deal breaker but there are a lot of people that were raised or grew up in communities of faith where it doesn't matter you just i endure. hate to say this
2: because this is how you guys get me roped into things but that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> <laughs>
1: Because that's a whole other (laughs)
2: podcast.
1: You heard it here. Yes,
2: that needs to be like completely dealt with appropriately with a whole different set of notes. And it's hard. I I tell people that come to my office, like, this stuff that we're doing, this stuff that we're talking about, you're not going to hear about this in a sermon on Sunday morning. Because a sermon is to the, like the middle which it should be. It's to the average, it's to the person sitting there. So that's what you're going to hear, but what we're talking about is all this stuff that falls outside of those lines. So women want to know, we're a man, because I do have men in this situation what do I do because I'm trying this and I'm trying that, or I've done this and I've done that. So they're trying very hard to control the situation, but it's from their partner. They cannot control their partner to change, they they can't. And so they're juggling or they're trying to balance these two poles of their belief in this God hates divorce and I can't do that and I can't be part of the community. And I'm very sick and alone and desperate over here. I tell them all the time, we're working in that hard stuff that's not getting talked about. That's why you're here, because you have to get specific help. This isn't a to-the-masses, generalist conversation that we're having. And it's hard, and they struggle, and they struggle desperately.
1: I've heard such a common prayer of women praying, God, please change him. And I feel like the more effective prayer is... God, change me. Expound. It's easy to be, when you're in a tough situation or having a rough time, you don't have control over other people. All you have control over is yourself. So when you start praying, changing your prayer and saying, Lord, change me, help me change and relate differently to this conflict. Yeah. Well,
2: I'm going to, I have to, I don't want you to feel challenged by me. I have to just challenge this just again to help the people out there that are in very difficult, not average relationships, because I would say, I know you guys, you're in average relationships. That's an average thing that I would hear in a sermon. And for the, the women and men I'm working with, I want them to hear that. And I would also challenge, they say, get to that point in session and they say, I got to pray to change me. And I would say hundred percent agree, but let's talk about what that change might be. And that change might be that you have to get a voice, that God's going to say you have to speak up, that God's going to say you're going to have to say no, that there's going to be boundaries, that you're going to have to possibly leave this marriage, and everybody in your whole community and your family is going to tell you that divorce is wrong under all circumstances. So like before, I would tell them before you start praying that prayer, which I agree, pray that prayer, but know that God will take you serious, and the change might occur. It might be different than what everybody around you is saying is the change. So your interaction with an abusive person is gonna look very boundaryed. It's not gonna look more like fawning and more like appeasing, but it also doesn't need to look defensive and it doesn't look argumentative. It in fact looks more like disengaging from the conversation, no longer trying to explain yourself. It's saying a lot of yes, okay, if that's how you see it, but that doesn't mean that then your behavior slinks off into the night and we just do it his way.
1: So there's two distinct things we're talking about here. One is abuse. And we're definitely saying, no, abuse is wrong. You do not need to put up with it. It either needs to change or you need to get out of there so that you're safe. That's some cases that we know. We have friends in those situations, or we have co-workers, or, so there's that. But then there's the other scenario where this is stuff where you're fighting about finances, or you're fighting about the socks on the floor, or you're fighting about...
2: Yeah, but no too, because in unhealthy relationships, they're not really fighting about big things. They're ta- They're fighting about finances and socks on the floor. They're just doing it in such a destructive way. Like a big thing in a marriage to fight about is like an affair. There's not that many people coming in with, I mean, there's tons of affairs, but I'm saying when people are coming in, the majority are coming in with not an affair. They're coming in with specific bad fighting patterns. These four things are bad fighting patterns. So it's all these little things that happen over all these years that create this resentment and contempt that make this couple so separate. And it was literally just thousands of socks on the floor done wrong.
1: Well, Kate and I were talking about this this week when Chris and her do marriage counseling and we were having this conversation about this topic and bringing this up in premarital counseling. And I said, you should have people fake practi- fake fight in front of you. <laughs> Not fake fight, but like- That's what you do. How with- do you, yeah. show us how you have a conflict and mm-hmm. what's your go-to and tell me about your last fight that, that you had because we don't talk about this enough. And I don't know, I can't remember if- This was in my premarital counseling, but I'm going with no, except for
2: in the way that you guys are, you know, like trying to get your head around this this morning in the biblical sense of the word, like be kind in your responses and all of that. It's that that's what premarriage counseling is. It's not actually premarital couples counseling, (laughs) (laughs) not premarriage counseling, because in couples counseling, you would do that conflict discussion, you know, you I'd get you guys Um, To identify something that's always a hot topic for you, and I'd get you going talking, and then I would watch, and you would know that's what I'm doing. I'm not going to really
1: interject. And it is normal for couples to have conflict about things. Conflict is
2: appropriate, it brings people closer.
1: We just want to learn how to fight fair and correctly, Correctly. Mm -hmm. and not bring the four horsemen of the apocalypse.
2: (laughs) Right, which Lewis, you're fighting. Because it will end your marriage either in divorce or just in complete disconnect.
1: Well, Mel, this has been really good information. I suggest re-listening to these podcasts again and again until it sinks in and you can catch yourself if you start to display criticism, defensiveness, contempt, or stonewalling and work on these antidotes. So that we can fight better in our relationships and
2: then you can repair conflict. You guys can solve problems. You can get farther in the world and you'll be closer.
1: And I liked what you said last week about healthy marriages. They have a conversation, they bring up the issue, they work on it. Sometimes they backslide mm-hmm. and then they bring it back up again. And they, you know, so it's not like you have one conversation and mm-hmm. it's done. The cycle is you talk, you, work on it and get better. Maybe you don't pay attention to it anymore and you default to how it was and then you bring it up again. But you go back to how can we make this better? How can Mm. we make a change? That is common.
2: Right. With your perpetual problems, you're going to have those same things that you're always going to continually come back to work on in the marriage. You accept the person fully as they are with their faults in that way, but you're always making bids for change. That is the opposite of contempt. That is love. I'm accepting you as you are, but I love you and me enough. I'm still going to ask for, like, you to get better at your budgeting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Please, pretty please. You know, like, that's love. I accept you with your quirks. I'm going to bid for change. But I'm not going to demand it, abuse you into it, power you, or withhold my love because you don't change these things. Just be careful when your lines, they're very gray, and you can't see exactly where they are, where one crosses over to the other. So if you're not sure... Seek help.
1: Well, Mel, thanks for coming in. We look forward to your next podcast talking about faith, the faith community and abuse. Difficult marriages. Difficult marriages for another day. Yay. Good information. (laughs) Let's get rid of those horsemen in our house. Make sure you tune in next week for another special guest.
0: Bye. Bye.